Welcome to the show. It's Friday, so that means I'm out, and it's also hashtag FOF, or F-O-F, Friends on Fridays. This Friday, we will broadcast John Zipper's week-to-week show. The program today is brought to you by Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. And now here's Week to Week with John Zipperer. I'm John Zipperer, the host of the Commonwealth Club's Week to Week Politics Program. You can find out more about Week to Week and all of the Commonwealth Club's many programs, including videos and audio, at CommonwealthClub.org. Now let's join this week's program. Well, thank you all for coming. Welcome to the Castro Theater and my neighborhood. We have a lot to talk about, and I want to thank again the Commonwealth Club for putting this together. This is one of my favorite places in the entire world, this building. Holds a lot of history for me and many of you, I'm sure, as well. Our guest uh, is an amazing man with a... Talk about a bar. Why don't you do the honors? Would you, would you yes. like a, they already poured one for me, actually. I think that's t- taste tax. That's not what I asked for. <laughs> oh, that works for me. Okay, yeah. all right. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs> no. No? I'm, I'll make myself oh, one, don't worry. Um, yeah, sorry. So um, we have an amazing actor, uh, a man who's had an extraordinary life. He's also a singer and a writer and a very articulate and passionate advocate for many causes ranging from LGBT equality to Scottish independence. And yes. Yes. I read that um, in your book that you were not pleased with Terry Gross's line of questioning, so I'm not going to inquire about your sexuality or your armpit hair. Is there anything more you want to say about that, though? Yes. I, it's, not that, it's, not that, it's not that she was interested in... I mean, I think my sexuality and my armpit hair are two areas that are worthy of discussion, but... <laughs> I just think when it becomes uh, overly discussed in, a, in an interview about the supposed to be at something else, it seems like it becomes kind of um, prurient mm. and um, just kind of sensational. And as much as I love Terry Gross, I do. I mean, it's, it's interesting when you meet, you know, Terry Gross. Obviously, we all listen to her and we think she's a, a sage and a. Let's hear it for Terry Gross. So imagine if, like, you were being interviewed by Terry Gross, who you listen to as this clever sage of a woman who you really agree with on many things and you like her line of questioning, and she starts talking to you and she goes on and on and on and on and on about your sexuality and your armpit hair (laughs) until the point you have to go, you're really embarrassed and you have to go, stop it, Terry. It kind of, it was disappointing to me. Mm-hmm. I understand. Um, <laughs> so, uh, I, I hate to, to spoil the mood, but there's some serious <laughs> going on, and you, uh, I've lived here a long time now, but I uh, hear people talking about the vote in the UK, the Brexit vote, as a, some sort of foreshadowing of what's happening here. And also, I know you've been a campaigner. Oh, sorry. (laughs) 
That's how excited I am to be with you, Cleve. <laughs> it's really lovely to see you again. <laughs> um, you've campaigned for Scottish independence, so yes. let's talk about Trump, talk about what's going to happen with Scotland now. Is this going to open the door for Scottish independence again? Do you think there'll be another round, another vote? Well, can I sort of talk about the refugee thing first of all and make it kind of a no, more holistic? million people living in refugee camps today, more than any time in history. Did you know that 65 million people in the world living in refugee camps? And why I asked if I could talk about this, because I feel like my feelings about Brexit, Scottish independence, Trump, everything is overshadowed by this idea, or not an idea, this fact that right now in the world there's been great displacement of people. I mean, there always is. And I, I recently went to Lebanon with the, with the UN, uh, the UNHCR. The, oh, thanks. <laughs> don't clap for that. Oh, I'll do if you want, but don't, you know, actually make donations rather than clap. So the UNHCR is the UN Human, uh, um, High Commission on Refugees. And it was an organization that was formed after the Second World War in order to help the displacement of people who were, you know, displaced after all the terrible things that happened. And it was only designed to be a thing that would only last a few years. Oh, here we are, you know, 60, whatever, 70 years later. It's now, only, only about 20 years ago was it designated a permanent thing. So I went, I went to the UN, I went to uh, Lebanon with the UN because Partly because I feel I have a voice and I can do good things in the world if I think are good um, because of my fame, but also because so much of the, uh, I had seen so many things happen in the rest of the world that I felt were due to this displacement of people. And when that happens, when people come into other people's cultures, they get scared and terrified and they start to have more extreme views. So, for example, a big thing about Brexit and the vote for Britain to leave the EU was to do with this mass of refugees coming from Syria and Iraq and other countries and going to Turkey and then in Turkey they got on all these boats and, and so many, like uh, thousands and thousands of people have drowned in the Mediterranean Sea trying to get away from the war in Syria and some of them have arrived and they've gone to different countries. But it's been a huge social and political issue in Europe. And it really, really affected the Brexit vote because I think that what happened was the language of fear was used so much about the idea of the other, the idea that these people are coming into our country. We're, we're, we're not doing that well ourselves, but now all these foreigners are coming. And within Europe, there's a big thing about asylum seekers and who already, before the war in Syria, were coming in, and there's, there's a lot of unrest about, especially in the south of England, who received most of these people. So this idea was then enhanced by this um, wave of immigrants, uh, or not immigrants, but refugees coming into the country. Whenever there's unrest and um, change in any country, perhaps like a new election about to happen, it's very easy for people to use the language of fear to make the people who potentially are going to vote um, have quite radical opinions. Even if their economic situation is quite good, even if things are going quite well, even if they have jobs, 
but, to, but it's easy to use uh, a language of fear to, to change people's opinions and make them do quite radical things. So in a way what I'm trying to say is that the language of, re the, of fear that was used in, in Brexit is now being used, not just was already being used right now in the American election system. This idea of the other, these immigrants who are coming in, these, these rapists and murderers, these Muslims who are coming in. And it was so fascinating for me to go to Lebanon and see these people who had really been displaced, who were the you know, ground zero, if you like. These people who had been displaced, had tried to live in their country, had had to go to another country for salvation, and were living in these huts. Like, you know, two chairs like this would have been their home. It was really, and a piece of tarpaulin over the top. It really was galling. And all these people wanted to do was go back to their homes. They didn't want anything from us. They didn't want to harm us. They didn't... Refugees are refugees for a reason. They don't... They're not kind of, you know, operatives trying to infiltrate us. They're people who have been displaced by great violence and persecution. And for me, I think Brexit and the rise of Trump is a... Are, uh, an example of the way that rhetoric about the other and about people who are different from you and people who may share different religions from you and people you don't understand can suddenly be whipped into a language of absolute fear and absolute fascism. And I really, really, really fear that's happening in this country right now. I'm, I'm terrified. I, I, uh, I posted the other day on Facebook that I, I, I had a young person tell me that Oh, all elections are like this. No, they're not. And then I had an, a person my age, I'll be 62 next, in a couple of weeks, who said, well, you know, we, d we survived Nixon and we survived Reagan. And the first thing I thought was of all my friends, and your friends, I'm sure, as well, who did not survive Reagan, I thought of all of the people in Cambodia and, and Vietnam and Laos who did not survive Nixon. And there, there was such a, a sort of cavalier attitude about it, but this is unlike anything we've seen in a long time, and I find it very frightening. I do too, and I think it's interesting as well because I think, you know, for Republican voters, and I'm sure there are some here this evening, I know there are some here this evening. <laughs> you know, who I totally respect, I, I feel I mean, I, I, I don't respect the American political system because like in, in any other democracy, most of the, there's not just two parties. It's not a binary thing. Um. It's amazing that America has taken, uh, uh, however many hundreds of years you are, not that many, but the idea <laughs> that you still only have two political parties that are, you know, I, I know there's the Green, the, the, the Independent, but seriously though, Mostly every democracy eventually breaks down into a more um, accurate depiction of the uh, uh, society's views. And America's stayed in this way, I think, on purpose, because it stops people being, becoming political, because basically politics is like this. Mm -hmm. It's a two-way thing. It's like some sort of, you know, every once in a while, every four years, you have to make a choice. Instead of being active and it being a part of what you, um, how it affects your life. But what I think was interesting right now is that for people who are Republican, they're now being asked to vote for someone who is absolutely nothing like their ideals. 
which is also, I think, how, like, you know, the people in Germany in the 30s were asked, and the people in uh, Italy and in South America, uh, when fascist leaders come to power, of course, they come to power slowly, and people look away, and they kind of laugh, and then they start to panic, and then all of a sudden, you have this fascist regime. I, I, I do really feel for... Republicans right now who have to de who have to make this choice about whether they're going to vote for Donald Trump or not. He is their leader, he is their candidate. But actually, what I think is the most important thing, and really the thing I, if if you take anything away from this evening, I would like you to consider this point: that America does not value education enough. No kidding. And so. The reason Donald Trump is so popular is that we have, we all, and we all have to take responsibility for this, have created a generation, a, a society where people do not analyze, people probably don't vote sometimes, but maybe they're being engendered to vote now by this rhetoric he's spouting, but they're, they don't question things. If they're told the same thing enough times, they will think it's true. The media, we've created a media, a non-educated media, which, which doesn't only reports, it does not take these people to task, it does not question, it does not fact check, it just, it's, infotainment has become, we used to joke about that, now that is the order of the day. So we live in this age of if, we're, if you're white, and um, not just white, but if you're rich, if you have money in this country, then you, then you have, you know, education and you have healthcare and you have justice. If you don't, if you're not wealthy in this country, you don't, you're not guaranteed health or education or justice. That's just the fact. <clears throat> so the idea, <laughs> what's, what's really terrifying is the idea that someone, because you've, because you've created this uneducated culture, sadly, this country might be ruled by someone who's going to even more punish people and not make them educated or healthy or have justice. And that's the biggest, that's the biggest flaw because actually any, any culture that's going to survive needs to have people who are educated and healthy and have justice at the very core of their society. So I'm really worried about the rise of Donald Trump. And I would just say that if there are, I know there are, if there are some Republicans in this room who are fighting and, and are having a moral dilemma about the idea of voting for someone they see as an extremist, even though he represents a party they have thought could do well in, for this country and has done well for this country in certain times, then I think you have a duty to not vote for him, to say don't vote. And also to go out, and, and I, don't, I, don't, I don't normally adhere to the idea of not voting. Vote for all your senators and, and congressmen, do all that, but do not vote for this man. He's a dangerous, dangerous man. And also, please go out and try and, please go out, if you have any worries, don't toe the party line. Go out and talk to as many of your friends who might be wavering and try and tell them that it's a dangerous thing for America that Donald Trump becomes president yeah. of this country. That's what I'm going to say. Thank you. So, and, uh, and for those of you who want to, to really take part in stopping this nightmare from happening, uh, 
I work for Unite here. In this town, we're local too, the Hotel Workers Union, and we're, we've taken responsibility for delivering the northern part of Nevada, which is emerging as a key state in the presidential race, and also the race to fill uh, Harry Reid's seat. He's retiring. So uh, the, the, the balance of the Senate, as, as well as the presidential race, might be decided right next door. You can find me on Facebook, and I'll send you up there and put you in a hotel room and have you canvas precincts if you'd like to do that. And I would encourage you to do Good so. Good deal. Um, so um, one of our uh, great writers who has written a lot about politics is someone you write about in this book, someone I've had a number of encounters with over the decades, and that was Gore Vidal. <clears throat> and every uh, time I encountered him, I left that encounter with a dark feeling in my stomach. And I wanted you to talk a little bit because I was quite struck by what you wrote about Mr. Vidal. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Hey, it's Michelle Miao. It's hard these days not to get a question about when I'm getting married or when I'm having kids. I get it. Marriage equality is legal now. I'm in my 30s and in a committed relationship. Marriage may not have a time limit, but what about having kids? I have a lot I want to accomplish before growing my family, like becoming the next Oprah. If I want to wait, what are my options? Join myself and our partner Pacific Fertility Center for a free seminar on egg freezing November 3rd from 6 to 8 p.m. Register at PacificFertilityCenter.com. Space is limited, so register now. That's PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.ale. G-R-E-C-A-R-E dot com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. Well, I, I mean, he, he is a, Gore Vidal was a brilliant person. He was sparkling and witty and, you know, if he were on the stage tonight, he'd be doing much better than us, I imagine. <laughs> but, 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 but his wit and his lashingness Ultimately, I've, I mean, I knew him over a, a few years, and I, I, I wrote a story, in my book I write a story about when I went to visit him in, in his house in Italy, and I just found him, and I was, the photo, I t uh, the photo that this uh, story inspires is a photo that I took of the running order of, the, um, of his uh, funeral, his uh, memorial service, which I was, you know, imagine, I was very honoured, I was asked to, re to speak at his memorial, I, I mean, 
It's kind of amazing. I can't believe that actually happened to me. But I write this story. I wrote, I'd written this story before, and then I kind of bookended it a bit because of this um, having a connection to photographs. And I just felt there was no joy in him. He was kind of a mean person. And, and there was two things about him. I, I write in his book a lot about, in my book, a lot about the idea that he could sit there with his partner 50 years, like five zero years, sitting next to him and saying, no, Alan, I have never loved. <laughs> and there was a, an interesting conundrum for me because he was talking about this idea that there is in America about um, sexual relations, what that means and all this stuff, and about how President Clinton was able to say, I've never had sexual relations with that woman, referring to Monica Lewinsky, who is an, a very dear friend of mine, and, and was even when I met Gore. And, and he was saying, I understand what he means because sexual relations does not cover any of the interactions that uh, President Clinton had with Monica. And I, find, I found that so difficult to cope with as well. I mean, I do find, sorry to um, say this, but American people <laughs> <laughs> seem to, and even still, even young people, like you say, oh, we, we didn't have sex, we just fooled around. <laughs> that to me, fooled around means like, you know, rolled some dice. <laughs> Had a game of Scrabble. <laughs> Maybe play dress up. But it does not involve putting a in your mouth. And... <laughs> that was a weird noise. <laughs> so... I found him very challenging. Even though as much as I admired him and I liked him very, I was, it was sparkling to be in his company. I found him mean and unforgiving and joyless. Cleave, yeah, yeah. Well, let's get away from that then. Yes, talk about on. someone wonderful. <laughs> um, I love the story about Elizabeth Taylor, and I have my own wonderful Elizabeth Taylor story because she was so great on, with AIDS from the beginning. And you know, she was friends with Reagan and all of those Republican fools, and she lost all those friends because she stood with us, and she stood with us in a very real way and, and used her power to lobby and Congress. And did she manage to sort of get Reagan to talk about AIDS for the first time because she lured yeah. him to this award ceremony? Yes. Her and. Um, um, Dr. Krim? Yes, I was there. He was really intense, and he was booed. And uh, she, after I said, I'm sorry that, you know, you, I hope you didn't feel awkward. No, she, and she said, no, he needed to hear it. He needed to hear it. But she came to the quilt display, the, the final display of the quilt, and we covered the entire mall. And um, she, uh, we, we set up a, a trailer for her behind the Lincoln Memorial where, from where she would address the crowd. And she had the hottest security guy I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. And I, so I kept walking by the trailer, you know? And he thought I was trying to talk to her. <laughs> and then at one point I walked by and I hear her yelling inside. She was upset. And I said, what's wrong with Ms. Taylor? And she, he said, well, she's very frightened of speaking in public which I thought was so odd, you know? 
And I said, well, let me talk to her. I've given speeches here many times, and I can calm her down. And so he knocked on the door, and I went in, and those eyes. Violet eyes. I mean, really, violet eyes. They're like and purple. Uh, you can't believe People say violet eyes. Like when you see them, you're like, what? <laughs> like an alien. Yeah. <laughs> and she was very upset, and I said, what's wrong? And she said, I hate public speaking. And, so, and I said, look, it doesn't matter what you say, because everyone there already loves you. And you could go up there and recite the alphabet, and people would just continue to love you for what you've done for us. And everybody knows it, and everyone knows you were the first. And she said, really, really? And I said, yeah, calm down, calm down, relax. And then as I was leaving, I remembered that we're right next, you know, it's right next to, I won't call it by its current name, National Airport in Washington, D.C. <laughs> and that if you do anything on the mall before 10 p.m., there's a very strong likelihood that a jet's going to go right over you in mid-speech. So I informed her of this, and she got very nervous and said, oh no, what, a jet's gonna go over? They won't be able to hear me? I said, look, it's simple. When you hear the, the sound of the aircraft, just pause, look up, look at your watch, tap your toe, look up again, and then everyone will know you're waiting for the jet to go by. And sure enough, halfway through her speech, the jet came over, she stopped, she looked up, she looked at her wrist, tapped her foot. And when I told Gus that, he said, oh, girl, you directed Elizabeth Taylor. You <laughs> <laughs> <He> did? <laughs> uh, that's fantastic. But she was amazing. She's so cute, yeah. So amazing. I also liked your description of Liza. Uh, she was also really good with us uh, in the early days of the quilt. And uh, when I met her, I just, my first thought was, I want to take care of you. I wanted to get her a blanket or something. You know? I, I just saw Liza yesterday, actually. Really? Yeah. I've just come from LA and she's living in LA now. And oh, she's such a darling. Like I, I write in my book about her, but I, you know, I feel, in a funny way, you know, it's so weird. Like, I get how, you know, we're both showbiz, uh, Broadway, la, la, la. But actually, from where I'm from and um, what I f how I feel about my life, the idea that I'm friends with Liza is, is so nuts. But actually, I feel that we have a very similar sensibility and, uh, you know, um, outlook on the world. And yesterday, I was in her apartment and she's watching Fox News, <laughs> Fox Business News, actually. And she's saying, like, she said to me things like, I'm terrified. I was like, well, you're watching Fox News. What do you expect? <laughs> and, um, <laughs> and she said, like, I want to, she said to me, I want to buy a chalet in Switzerland. I was like, why? And she goes, because it's neutral. And I was like, all right. I mean, and then, um, <laughs> then I said to her, don't watch Fox News, Liza. It's all just like this, this rhetoric of fear. It's all about fear, you know. Yes, we should be wary, we should be vigilant. But you can't live your life being fearful of everything. You can't. Otherwise, you just like crawl into a hole. So you've got to like go out into the world with a, quite an open heart and expect that some people will engage with you in that same spirit. I said, why don't you watch CNN? <laughs> and she was like, okay. So I put, I put CNN on, and then I went to the loo, and I came back, she put it back to Fox. <laughs> the familiar, I suppose, you know. 
When did you first visit San Francisco? Um, I know I came first to San Francisco in uh, 1996. Notice any changes? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, not. I mean, no, not really, because I've, I've only. I was saying to you earlier when we came down the stairs. I've come here many, many, many times over the years, and I, you know, also my um, my husband is from here, from the Bay Area, and so my. Yeah, it's here for him. Yeah, yeah. So I come a lot, and I go and I go and you know stay with my mum-in-law, um, um, in in Piedmont, and s <laughs> Piedmont power. <laughs> so I, I I I I have this kind of. Um, I come in short bursts. I've never really spent a sustained amount of time here. So I'm always kind of learning, and especially in the city, I'm always kind of, you know, learning about it. So I know there must have been huge changes since then. But in 1996, I actually, a friend of mine was directing a film here, and I came um, with my then uh, fiance, who was a lady, that's how long ago it was. And, <laughs> And we stayed on a on a B and B in one of those boats by the you know in the harbor and the you know, there's a Sausalito. No, no, in the, in here in San Francisco, like a, one of the um, jetties. What do you call it? Uh, you know, we can rent piers. What? Piers, yeah, one of the piers. Yeah, yeah. It was it was pretty exciting. I think you should buy a place here, but I would suggest that you not get one in the Millennium Tower. <laughs> um, so I put up on, it's crumbling. They built this silver tower for the rich people, and fortunately it's sinking into the I mud. I would never want to go there. Um, so I posted on Facebook, and some people wanted me to ask you uh, about bisexuals and visibility of bisexual people in the movement. And that's, that's something I read about frequently, people asking about that. So what, do you want to say anything about that? I feel, you know, that there's so many great things about living now when we do, and living in an age when I can be my, I can say my husband, and nobody bats an eye, and nobody boos me or throws eggs at me or wants to kill me. I mean, maybe some people do, but at the same time, I think when the more kind of um, advances are made in terms of uh, opening up people to different ideas, there's also a closing off in some ways too. And I think like, I've all, I, I do feel like I'm bisexual. I have, a, I have a husband, you know, and, but I used to be married to a woman and a couple, a couple of them actually, and, <laughs> or nearly, you know, like, but, but you know, my exes are, you know, uh, of different sexes. And I've never thought I wasn't a bisexual. I understand that the pendulum has swung and blah, blah, blah. But I've just, for me, I've, I refuse to close off the possibility of even my mind, not in real life, mother-in-law, <laughs> um, to to the idea of, 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 you know, this is what, this is what I, I like and this is what, so, and I think it's interesting because people say, well, you're worth a man now, why don't you consider yourself gay? 
And I said, to, I say, well, if you had no sex for like six months, would you consider yourself not straight? <laughs> Thank you. And so <laughs> this thing about what makes, what, what defines you as, as your sexuality or your gender or whatever you want to be called, isn't that about you should decide it rather than the people outside of you? And... So, and I, I've really noticed this trend to be, I, I mean, I get it. I think when you're gay or, or, or. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. The spotlight on success and achievement goes to LGBTQI members of the Bay Area who have demonstrated an incredible amount of success. We're very proud to announce that this month's Spotlight on Success and Achievement is Rick Welts. Well, it's been an unbelievable stretch of time, obviously. Uh, everything the Warriors have gone through this season, really a magical season that ended in a championship. Uh, and now to, to top it off a week later with the opportunity to participate in the Pride Parade in San Francisco, it's, uh, it's a pretty wonderful time. You know, it's been a journey, right? We're all on our own personal journeys, and uh, the last four years has been a remarkable part of my life, but it, it's definitely a part of my life. Uh, you know, the decisions I made four years ago to come out in the way that I did, obviously, you know, I had decided I was signing up for something going forward and being part of the discussion, uh, and, you know, I welcome that. And this is, uh, you know, for me, a real honor to, to be participating in this way, and. I guess in, in some ways it, it will be a demonstration of how far professional sports has come in, in a very short period of time, uh, not as far as our society has come, so I think we have a lot to celebrate. Wow, I, I don't think I have any secrets. I don't think I'm that mysterious. You know, I've got a uh, pretty simple life. I like pretty simple things. Uh, you know, I've, I've got a great partner. His name's Todd Gage. Uh, he has two wonderful children, a 14-year-old girl and a 10-year-old boy. I, I uh, got off the parade route, got into a car with them, we drove to Lake Tahoe, and I got to watch 14-year-old girls play four soccer games over the course of the weekend and then drive back to the Bay Area. So that's my idea of an exciting weekend, you know, spending it with the kids and my partner and getting to do, you know, the most basic things that any family would get to do. Spotlight on Success and Achievement, presented by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. Of any minority, actually, when you are free to be who you want to be, you want to be with other people like you. I get that. I really understand that. But that means you kind of wear a uniform and you only just do the things that this group has decided you do. It means you wear certain clothes and you look a, your hair is a certain way. But if you, in a funny way, you close yourself off to the idea of other things. And I've never done that. I've never wanted to do that and so I feel often I feel my sometimes I feel the biggest things that I'm an activist for are because of things that I feel I'm being asked to stop by society. I'm uh, about 11 years older than you so um, when, when, <laughs> when AIDS began I was uh, almost I was in my late 20s so 
I think your generation, uh, during the time when you were discovering your own sexuality and, and figuring out what that meant to you, was right when that nightmare was beginning. How did that impact you as a, as a young man? You know, Cleve, it's actually one of, like, the only thing that I could ever thank Margaret Thatcher for. And I mean, I mean, because I think she was a truly heinous person. <laughs> I, I mean, and I'm not even saying that, not even take away the political things, take away the economic things, just as a moral person. She did some things that, and perhaps you won't even understand it if you have never lived in Britain at that time. But trust me on this. She was not a good woman. But the only thing that I will ever consider giving her a positive um, vibe about is, and, even, and probably she didn't even have anything to do with this, but she condoned it, which is the, the sex education campaign that, she, that her government put out in the early 80s when AIDS first happened. And it was this big thing. It's a very famous, um, iconic sort of advertising. It was an iceberg which said AIDS on it. So the whole notion was it's much, much, much more than you'll ever begin to fear, you know, this idea of an iceberg. And that was like when I was 16, 17, when I was becoming sexually active. So my entire life was, and my, and my, conditioning about safe sex was, I'm loath to say, a credit to Margaret Thatcher. Mm. <laughs> I'm not sure that's really the response I was looking for. <laughs> but I've become, you know, as you get older and, uh, but, but you know, in early days, of course, I knew people who were dying and I, I once did a show, I remember very vividly doing a show in Glasgow in the in like, uh, late 80s. There was a benefit for, I think, a crusade, it was an AIDS charity. And I saw someone in the front row in a wheelchair, obviously very sick, who I'd had sex with. And it, it was the first moment I was like, what? You know. And I'm very, very lucky. I'm, you know, I, live, I lived through that time. I thought I was always being safe, and I tried, you know, I think we've all got responsibilities. But I, I just hit it at the right moment that with fear, not the good fear. I mean, this is the good fear to try and make you not have AIDS, not the bad fear that Donald Trump is trying to make you worry about everyone who does not look like you. But I do feel I was someone who hit that time at the, at, the, at the most optimum time, was able to have a great life, but also very aware of your responsibilities and your safety and sexuality. I think here it created a strange sort of generation gap that the younger people who were coming of age at the height of it were just so horrified by it. And I think a friend of mine, Sean Strube, was in town about a year ago to do a book reading about ACT UP and his involvement in that. And it was, I was struck by who was there at the reading. 80% uh, of them were 50 or over. 
There was no one in their 40s or 30s, and then there were a smattering of young people in their 20s for whom it was a lesson in some kind of history that they were trying to learn more about. But I, I think it's affected us in ways that we're just now maybe beginning you know, to understand. I just did a film. I just made a film that is hopefully going to come out next year called After Louis. And it's, a, it's really about the schism between the generations of, older gay, of, of, of gay men. And there's an older gay man, sadly, played by me. And... Get over it. I know, imagine. <laughs> who was very involved in ACT UP. As a very young man, of course. And, and now he's kind of like, you know, has, has been an artist. And now he's kind of transfixed on that time and he's making a documentary about someone he knew who had died, and who then meets this much younger man. And um, this younger man has, uh, and basically there's this, you know, schism between them where the, where the old guy's going like me, like going, you don't understand what it was like. We fought for all these things for you. you you're able to do blah, blah, and blah because of us. And the young guy's going, I know, thank you, but like, I don't. I wasn't. Th I wasn't in the war. I'm never going to be able to be in the war. In the war, don't make it boring and push me away. And I think it's such an. I never heard this. Um, what's the word? Ar not argument, but this kind of um, dichotomy, dichotomic rhetoric, if you will, before. Yet, I, once I'd read the script, I realized I knew so many people from both sides of the argument that really, really understood it. And so this is, I think, I think I, I've thought more and more about this, that I think, you know, PTSD has been something that affected me very much. My, you know, in my last book, I talked about my grandfather died in Malaysia playing Russian roulette, obviously very affected by PTSD. I feel I've had PTSD from my abusive father, I feel like a whole generation of not just gay men, but people who understood what was happening when AIDS was ravaging people, they're having PTSD, they've had PTSD, they're coming out of it. But PTSD is a long-term thing, and I think there's a whole swathe of our population who are just like, coming to terms, like with the Vietnam issue, that people are understanding now that it goes on for many decades that you have to deal with the problems of people, putting people into situations where they're so let go by their governments and so not cared for. AIDS was the same thing. And now we have a whole, we're still dealing with this schism. And now that schism is becoming apparent because the middle generation just aren't there. So that's what this film is about, and I hope... Is it called again? It's called After Louis, and um, hopefully it'll be out in film festivals and something next year. I just want to say a little bit more about what... Uh, you know, I find myself sometimes being that old queen doing this at people, and especially around issues of sexual health. And you hear a lot of resistance, uh, even in this town, uh, around PrEP, the pre-exposure prophylaxis uh, drug, Truvada, which prevents... Uh, people from getting, who are HIV negative from getting the disease. And I hear so many people my own age who survived such misery and, and incredible loss. And they're shaming and they're blaming these kids. And, they're, and I keep saying, you know, 
They didn't live through that. They can't possibly understand what it was. And thank God they don't understand what it was. But instead of the wagging the finger and the shaming and the blaming, let's try to tell them how beautiful they are, how much we love them, how much their lives do matter to us, and how much we want them to protect themselves. Uh, Please, you said darling. Thank you. <laughs> well, now I'm quite thrown. Um, no. <laughs> do you want to talk about Glenn Close's back? <laughs> uh, yes, but could I just say a little bit about what you just said? Because I feel like I totally am with you. I totally feel like I'm a totally sex positive person, but also I feel like there is this and this whole new drug, and perhaps some of you don't know, but I'm sure most of you do, but about prep that which can you can take it and you can for what ninety six percent or ninety nine percent. That's that one point. 0.0% I worry about, but you can have sex with impunity and not worry if someone is uh, HIV positive. In this, in this, for this drug, it lets you have sex with someone who's HIV positive, and you, and it will, and it can some way um, force the HIV away. My, I have to say, I know this sounds like a conspiracy theory. We'll be back with more here on Friends on Fridays with John Zipperer of Commonwealth Club right after this. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Hey, it's Michelle Miao. It's hard these days not to get a question about when I'm getting married or when I'm having kids. I get it. Marriage equality is legal now. I'm in my 30s and in a committed relationship. Marriage may not have a time limit, but what about having kids? I have a lot I want to accomplish before growing my family, like becoming the next Oprah. If I want to wait, what are my options? Join myself and our partner Pacific Fertility Center for a free seminar on egg freezing November 3rd from 6 to 8 p.m. Register at PacificFertilityCenter.com. Space is limited, so register now. That's PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.ale. G-R-E-C-A-R-E dot com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. But I have to say, so now we have drugs. So first of all, I come from a country that does, is not this, obviously. And we have, uh, you know, free health care. We don't have insurance company. We have, we have them a little bit now because your whole thing has infected us. But... <laughs> But really, in the main, it is still possible to exist in Scotland without an insurance plan 
to go, if you're, if you're sick, to go to a doctor and get free drugs and free healthcare. So, I know, crazy, right? And so, and we don't pay, we pay about the same tax as you. So I think, what is happening? Where's the tax money going? War. War, thank you, yes, probably. So, but my point is that I feel worried about this idea that the pharmaceutical industry and the insurance industries in this country control, are so powerful and control so much of the rhetoric in terms of healthcare that we're able to have a drug that if you're HIV, say I was HIV positive, I could have a cocktail of drugs that would just completely make my life fine, it would take my uh, counts down to zero, it would be undetectable. I could take a pill every day, a very damaging pill. It's, it's, you know, it's not a, it's not like a, you know, a baby aspirin. It's a lot. It has effects on other things that we're only starting to find out. Also, now, I could take a pill, let's take this pill, uh, not every day actually, and say I went and had sex, unprotected sex, with someone who was HIV positive who even had full-blown AIDS, actually. This drug I could take would stop me, would repel uh, me from, uh, them from uh, infecting me, and I would be fine. Yet we don't have the ability to have a cure for AIDS. Well, where's the profit in a the cure? There's no profit in a cure. Yeah. And that, I feel, is like diabetes, HIV, AIDS, there's so many illnesses in this country that I think we have to look again at how we've allowed the insurance industry and the pharmaceutical industry to have so much power. And of course, you know, it used to be that our medical industries were the proudest things in our, in our cultures. They were the ones that were going to stop these illnesses and give advances and make other... Now they're basically financial, like money-making things. And, and because of that, I really do feel that there are illnesses that we are all facing, and, we, and some of us may all have to deal with till the day we die, that could be cured like that, but because it's not financially um, viable. Well, I'm afraid I, I totally agree with you. I think, however, uh, you know, it's just a reality. And for me, the biggest, one of the great disappointments of the Obama, eight years of Obama, was that we didn't get what we needed in terms of real health care reform. But for people who are dealing with HIV in their day-to-day -day now What do you mean life, by that? Can I ask you about what do you mean by that? Well, we didn't, of course, we didn't get what we wanted, but don't you think Obamacare is a universal. huge oh, well, step in that direction? It's a very good step in certain directions. The extension of coverage for young people to 26 is huge. But it's only affected removing 20 the, million people. Removing the pre-existing condition. That's absolutely, great. absolutely. And also, but, for anyone who's out here who who is thinks that we must repeal Obamacare or repeal no, Obamacare. No, no, I'm not suggesting any such thing. I know, I know no. you're not. I wasn't no. talking to you. But this is a country of how many? 300 and what million people? 30, 230 million people. So Obamacare has only made, at its, at its apex, 20 million people, more people have access to 
the very basic healthcare. So all that other 310 million people, if you're grouching about that, Clearly, it's an improvement, but what we need is universal care. <laughs> and the, Productivity the, there. You know, the, the, the health insurance industry was so involved in writing the legislation. Totally. And, uh, and that's the thing, you know, Cleve, I'm from Scotland. We, we pay as much taxes as you do here in, in America. And, and, I think and we have free education and free health You know, people in, with AIDS in Scotland are treated so much better than what we have. Totally. Here. It's amazing. Housing, for such everything they need. I remember in the, in the, in the mid-80s doing things in, um, you know, in Scotland about, uh, uh, with healthcare things. It's just, it's just, it's a sensibility. It's a different, because I think like, you know, I mean, I love this country. I, 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 I've become a citizen here and I understand, I, I think I understand it, but I, I don't understand this idea that I face quite often where people think that you don't have to look after other people, that it's not just a prerequisite of your being in this world. I think if you live in it, if you, whatever you are, like that, you know Ubuntu, this thing, and I talk about this quite a lot, but Ubuntu is a very simple thing. It means basically, I am only happy if you're all happy. It's like having a party, you know. If I'm, a, if I'm having a party, if there's someone at my party not, not happy, I'm like, oh, it's a terrible party. That's life, I think, you know? Yeah. If someone's not healthy, we're all not healthy. If someone's, not, if someone's doing not well financially, we're, not, we're all not doing well financially. And I think that, okay, anyway, it's a huge deal, of course, but that's the difference between Scotland and America. And I think also there's this pervasive notion in this country that things only have value if they bring profit to shareholders. And I th it's happening with education, it's happening with the arts, it's happening with everything. Everything is being privatized. And, and to have that be the signature of healthcare that you can only get it if some people profit from it, it's just to me fundamentally wrong, and I'm told I'm totally now to ask you. for questions. So questions. There are people out there with wireless mics. Uh, hi, Alan. My name's Todd. Um, if you had to define what your biggest success was, whether it was a TV or a Broadway or a movie, what would be the one thing that defines you that you are the most proud of professionally? I don't think it would be any of those things. I think it would be really the idea that my success as um, an actor or you know, in film or television or as a writer, blah, 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 the fact that that had inspired mostly young people, actually, but that my success as, a, as, a, as a, an artist had inspired people to come out to their parents, talk to their abusive father, you know, deal with their bullies. I, I, I can't tell you how much when, when, when people come and tell me that and say things like, you know, you inspired me to do blah. That, is, that to me is the greatest success, much more than like, you know, awards or anything like that. Really, that's, and it's not why I became an artist, obviously, I, I became an actor because I just liked it. But actually, I feel that I have a platform and 
sometimes I, my platform is not just about selling the most books or the most, you know, people going to see films or winning awards. It's actually about changing people's hearts. And that's really my good sister. <laughs> Hi, um, my name's Alan as well. We've actually met one night in a disco, but <laughs> that's a whole other issue. But the, you introduced yourself as a writer to me because I didn't recognize you as one of those nights. Um, and one of the questions that I am wondering is how do you see your role as a writer and your role as an actor, and how do you see each of those contributing what you're contributing to the world? Oh, well. Um, I just see it as the whole same thing, really. You know, I, I feel like perhaps as a writer, you have more direct influence on people because like, your words are going boom. I think this, you know. But I feel like I, I feel like I'm a prov provocateur. I feel like I don't want to necessarily, you know, kind of like um, shame you or. Um, damn you. I, want you, I want to provoke you and to make you think about things. And so that's really what I think as a writer and as any form of, any of the things I do, all I hope is that people will rethink their prejudices and just try and understand other people's points of view. Hello. Hello. What helped you move from the violence and isolation of your childhood to become this loving, compassionate, more broad-thinking person? You must have had some support, some ideas that made you know that wasn't the only world available. Yes, I did. I, I feel I had, um, you know, very, very negative um, influences in my early life and very positive influences and so like when you when you're a child and you have you see very disparate uh, experiences you grow up very quickly something that's not you know I, it's not so good but you have to make a decision about what you think and I realized like I feel I always say this my mom told me I was precious and my dad told me I was worthless and I thought they were both wrong and so I feel like I, it's a good thing for life. I feel like I sort of think, mm, I'm somewhere in the middle. And so I, I think having a very damaged beginning to your life, and, but coming out of it and realizing like, whoa, that was damaged, means that you embark on your life with an understanding that is really fruitful and really Remarkable because you're you never take anything on face value. You always sort of think, I'll find my, I'll I'll, I'll make my own opinion about this. Hi, Ellen. Um, did you enjoy uh, doing Good Wife? No. <laughs> <laughs> you were you were kind of I did, a, I did. you were kind of a nasty. Um, sensitive politician kind of guy in an American. Did you like all that? <laughs> I, <laughs> oh. um, I, I loved The Good Wife. I loved it. I loved it. I thought it was such a great... On many levels, you know, I, 
It was such a great thing for me to be able to be at home. You know, I live in New York. I live with my husband Grant in New York, and it was so nice to not have to travel the world all the time. And you know, when I first started it in 2010, we'd been together five years, six years, something. And it was getting a little old, the whole kind of me traveling the world, making films, blah, blah, blah. So suddenly this idea that nine months of the year I'd be in New York. Thank you for joining us for this week-to-week presentation of a recent Commonwealth Club program. I'm John Zipperer, host of Week to Week, and I invite you to find us online at commonwealthclub.org and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.